Hello and welcome to our very first episode of Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, one of the actors from Little Fictions Live. Little Fictions Live has been bringing the best of short fiction and microlit to audiences across New South Wales for the past three years. We've visited pottery sheds and cafes, bars and libraries, festivals and schools, and now we're making these tales available to you anytime via the Little Fictions podcast. Each episode, I'll be sharing 30 minutes of great stories, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In this episode called Dire Straits, I'll be bringing you three stories in which characters are faced with very contemporary moral dilemmas. These stories were all recorded live. And just a warning, some of these works do contain some strong language. Up first is a very short story, a microfiction, from Wollongong writer Susan McCreary. While shopping at Bunnings, a woman runs into her ex-husband and his new partner. The story is called Hardware and is performed by actor Emma Diaz. I'm directing my trolley hesitantly towards bathroom accessories when I hear a hello. I turn to see my ex and his partner. Hello, I say, smiling pleasantly while inwardly saying, shit, of all places. I blurt out, where are the kids? And it sounds accusatory, even though the kids are old enough to be left at home and I do it all the time. Apparently, one of them is still in bed. Get him up, I let fly. It's a beautiful day, almost midday. She looks at me and says condescendingly, it's all very well to tell him to get up, but if he doesn't want to, oh really, please don't tell me about my son. She's in her silly denim shorts, which I'm sorry, are just wrong. We get off the topic of the kids and onto why I'm in Bunnings. She says, she never expected to see me here. And I say, I come here a lot, thinking, why would she think that? I launch into a list of things I'm fixing in my bathroom when I realise I'm talking mainly directly at my my ex about measurements and fittings and about the helpful bloke from the Grey Army. So I turn to include his partner because I'm nice like that. She says, the Grey Army is great. I nod. What are you here for? Screws, my ex says. Screws. That was Hardware, which appears in Loopholes, a collection of microfiction by Susan McCreary and published by Sydney-based publisher Spineless Wonders in 2016. It was read by Emma Diaz, who is a Sydney-based actor. Emma also works as a theatre director, and she recently produced A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing for Brevity Theatre, which had a season at the King's Cross Theatre. The next story we'll hear is a longer one, Open for Inspection by Sydney writer John Steiner. In this story, a young couple face a moral dilemma while house hunting in the highly competitive Sydney property market. The story is narrated by actor Joel Horwood. Me and Martia had spent every Saturday for like, six months looking at houses. The shittiest shitholes, mostly. Or if they were good, there'd be like a hundred people there. So many they had to send us through in groups. And you know you'd have no chance in hell of getting it. We bid at a couple of auctions where we thought we might just be able to afford one. But at the first auction, the bidding flew right past our limit within two minutes and kept on flying. And at the second one, The opening bid was exactly our limit, but we continued to spend every Saturday looking. 
because what else were we going to do? And then we'd go home in the afternoon and Marty would crawl into bed, put the blankets over her head and wail, we're never going to find a home. So this one Saturday, it was around two or something, and we were in the middle of our list for the day. It was like the third or fourth house out of about seven. We got to the place and there was the usual crowd gathering out front. Not a huge crowd at that one, maybe only 15 or 20 people, because it was nothing out of the ordinary. You could tell without even going inside that it would just be another damp, pokey, rotting, peeling, crumbling terrace with a long hallway down one side, a couple of bedrooms, a small, worn-out kitchen, a decrepit bathroom out back, and a weird smell. And everyone was doing the usual thing of ignoring each other, but secretly sussing each other out, like... Who's got money? Who looks seriously interested? Who might be a builder? That type of thing. You start to see the same people all the time because you're all looking in the same area and price range. You don't really get friendly with them or anything. They are, after all, your rivals. The agent wasn't there yet. Five minutes late and counting. There's always a tight window between houses on your list, so everyone's pretty antsy to get in and out quick. When the agent is late, you have to make the call of whether the house has enough potential to make it worth missing the next one. A bunch of people decided that this one didn't and left, leaving maybe ten of us. Then the rain started, that awful, gloomy winter rain. At first, just a few cold, fat drops, and people muttered in anger at the agent for stranding us out there. But then suddenly it got hard and everyone panicked. No one had an umbrella. We hadn't expected to stand outside. We hadn't expected rain. We hadn't known what to expect. But this one hipster couple who we'd seen a dozen times at other houses, and I'd always found them irritating, particularly the guy's weird earrings and carefully messed up hair and habit of talking loudly to his spouse about all the termite damage and dry rot. An old trick. No one falls for it. And... Well, I had to review my opinion of them because they had a big old van and they just threw open the back doors and called us all to jump in. So we went from like adversaries competing for the same houses to comrades in arms, united in our hatred of the common enemy, that being the real estate agent. We all huddled together in that old van while rain pounded on the roof talking quietly about whether anyone had put in an offer on the Silver Street house, bemoaning the cost of houses generally, and inveighing against real estate agents, with particular emphasis on the current one who was late. And then, through the dirty, rain-streaked windows, we saw a small, brand-new sports car come screaming up the street and stop in front of the house. The vanity number plate said, Cash. The downpour was just petering out. A very young man climbed out of the car, opened the boot, and pulled out an open-for inspection sign, which he deposited on the footpath outside the house. His hair was moosed up into a small faux hawk, and he bore an expression of long-suffering disdain. His suit was expensive, but not classy, and his Rolex was chunky and highly conspicuous. He didn't seem surprised that nobody was waiting to see the house. In fact, he didn't seem like he cared about anything. 
As we all climbed down out of the van, he pulled out a large set of keys and climbed the steps towards the front door. We filed through the gate and followed him up the steps. When he noticed us, he snapped. Wait on the footpath, please. I need to open the house. We obediently backed down the steps and stood just outside the gate, peering through the open front door as he disappeared down the hallway. We heard him speaking to someone inside. His voice was raised. He sounded angry. After a minute, he returned, shaking his head in exasperation. He gave us a curt nod to indicate that we were now permitted to enter and view the house. But as we climbed the steps, he said, The tenants are home. They were supposed to be out for the inspection, but they're here. This strange new piece of information slowed, but did not stop our progress towards the door. It was no longer just an empty house we were entering, though. Now we were intruding someone else's space, and none of us were quite sure how to feel about that. The house smelt like eggs. One after another, we stuck our heads into the front bedroom and looked it up and down noting peeling paint on the ceiling, damp patch on the wall, small size of the room. There was no need to even physically enter the room. All necessary information could be gathered from a simple glance in, up, and down. We then processioned down the hallway to the second bedroom and gave it the same cursory looking over. The sound of a television was audible from deeper within the house, along with some sort of air hose sound, and the egg smell increased in intensity. As the hallway disgorged us into the large back room, which had been created by knocking out the wall between what had once been the lounge room and dining room, we beheld an old man sitting in a wheelchair, covered in blankets, with an oxygen tube connecting him to some sort of machine. Standing behind him with a hand on his shoulder was a grey-haired woman, her jowls and cheeks sagging under the weight of the world. The term careworn came to mind. They both observed our arrival with silent, baleful stares. We stopped, the ten of us banking up just inside the doorway, not game to intrude further on this sad tableau. We stared at the old couple, and they stared back. The agent, from his position in the open front doorway at the other end of the hall, noticed the logjam-type situation and called to us angrily, "'Just ignore them! They weren't supposed to be here. Go ahead and look through the house.' The hipster couple were the first to move. They sidled cautiously through the room, passing between the old couple and the television, murmuring a quiet apology as they tiptoed on into the kitchen. Martya and I went next. I tried to regain my cynical, appraising eye, noting where the floor felt a bit bouncy, observing that the stove was electric, not gas, and that you had to go outside to get to the toilet. But my attention was continually drawn to the couple, and to their pitiful existence in this scrubby, worn-out house. Whoever bought the place would have to be the ones to evict them. That really was the unspoken message here. They knew it, and now we knew it too. It was no mistake that they were home during the inspection. After a cursory walk around the small back garden, our group filed back through the house and out the front door. The agent didn't even bother taking down our names, and nobody asked for a copy of the contract. We all just said, thanks, flatly, as we exited, nodded to each other, and went our separate ways. What did you think? Asked Martyr as I started the car. Pretty run down, I said. 
Could be cosy, though, with some fresh paint. There was some rising damp in those front rooms. Could get that fixed. I drove slowly down the street and turned the corner. Maybe we should have gotten a contract, Marcia said. Do you reckon? I asked. What about that old couple, though? Whoever buys that place will have to kick them out. How shitty would that be? It would be very shitty, she conceded. But just imagine finally having a house. Imagine having our Saturdays back. Imagine this fucking nightmare being over. We could spend our time picking out paint colours and planting a garden and oiling outdoor furniture instead of this. She leaned back in her seat, almost in tears. I could see her point. To be done with house hunting. To settle down somewhere and be free to start our lives. Be grown-ups. Have children, perhaps. Grow old. Then I thought of the couple. They had grown old and now they would lose their home. But the thing was, it was going to happen anyway. Somebody was going to buy that house and kick them out and fucking hell, it might as well be us. It would be seriously fucked though, kicking them out. We'd feel like horrible people. But we'd soon forget that bit. That was just the way the world worked. What can you do in this life but play the cards as they are dealt? You're right, let's go back and get a contract, I said, and I circled the block and came back up the street. As I pulled up to the house, the hipster couple were just getting out of their van. And then I spotted another one of the couples climbing out of their Subaru across the street. I double parked, put the blinkers on, and Marcia and I jumped out. We all converged at the gate. Nobody said anything. We avoided eye contact. The real estate agent, that smug little fucker, was standing in the doorway, smirking, holding a stack of contracts ready for us. That was Open for Inspection, which appears in John Steiner's The Last Wilkies and Other Stories, published by Spineless Wonders in 2016. It was performed by Joel Horwood. Joel has performed in a number of independent theatre productions. Most recently, he performed the lead role of Ort Flack in the stage adaptation of Tim Winton's novel, That Eye the Sky. Both Hardware and Open for Inspection were recorded live as part of the City of Sydney's Late Night Library program in 2017 at Glebe Library. Our final story is read by myself and was recorded live at Little Fictions at Knox Street Bar in the Sydney suburb of Chippendale. Something from the old school by Blue Mountain's author Helen Richardson transports us into a university English department where a lecturer finds herself in deep water. I hope you enjoy Something from the Old School. The group of students crowded around the ground floor entrance to the department chanting and clapping and holding up placards. The sunny quietude of well-watered lawns at odds with their protests. Elizabeth had to push past them to get in. The whooping surged around her, then receded as she made it to the relative safety of the foyer. Some of the other academics had come down the stairs to observe the proceedings. What's that about? Paul Chrysiston, one of the new lecturers, asked her. She shrugged. I have no idea. Does that happen much here? He followed her up the stairs. She looked at him wondering if this was a veiled criticism of the department. Paul was appointed as young blood. Two years at Columbia rendered him with a slight accent and in the eyes of some, a distant glamour. She fumbled for the key to her office. She had a 10 o'clock meeting with Alicia, one of her research students. 
Paul stood at the window in the corridor, looking down on the crowd still chanting outside. He took a photo with his phone. John Harrison, the head of department, was an old friend of Elizabeth's, part of the old guard that had made the department their life's work. Paul seems to think you might know something about the demonstration this morning, he said, pushing a button on the department's new espresso machine. Why would Paul say that, she asked, but John was giving nothing away, concentrating on his coffee. I believe it was about sexism or racism, she added. Well, nothing new then. She liked this dryness of John's. It wasn't to everyone's taste, though there'd been complaints amongst the staff that he wasn't serious enough. I thought we'd dealt with all that in the 80s, she smiled. He raised his eyebrows but didn't look at her. I've got a meeting with a delegation of them at ten. Elizabeth wondered what it could be this time. There'd been problems in the past. Gender imbalance in courses, all that fuss about Martin Amos, marginalised voices, postmodernism. They'd always responded. Restructured, revised courses, brought in younger academics. The subjects they offered now would be unrecognisable to an undergraduate of her generation. Back in her office, she turned on her laptop, preparatory to printing out the chapter Alicia had emailed to her. It was Lankanian psychoanalysis and George Eliot, an area where Elizabeth barely kept ahead of her postgraduate, her role now being reduced to editor and sounding board. She sent Alicia's work to print and took a quick look at her emails. Her university account seemed more full than ever. Alicia had shown her a complicated procedure to filter and sort student emails, but Elizabeth had never managed to accomplish it. There was one, however, from Brian that she spied amongst the morass. Good old Brian. They'd been students together and had dated briefly in her younger days. Now he clung on grimly in a university across town, complaining about his colleagues and students. Today he was crowing about one of the young lecturers who had made an ill-advised post on a comment blog. It had caused a stir, and now one of the most respected critics in the country had come out and shot the lecturer down in flames. Elizabeth emailed back what she hoped was an amusing account of the student demonstration. She was sure Brian would see the irony in this sort of protest. After all, with a university policy to cover every aspect of academic life, it was virtually impossible to infringe on anyone's rights. No, the power balance was moving more and more towards the students. Alicia arrived for her supervisory session at 10. Right, this is fine, Elizabeth said, going through the chapter. I'm happy with the way you've broken up the textual references. Elizabeth glanced across at Alicia, whose eyes were downcast. She'd grown accustomed to this perpetual bowing of the head as her students bent over their phones. Alicia looked up. Oh, I'm sorry, there's just something... Elizabeth waited. Well, Alicia began, holding up her phone... There's a call to boycott lectures for this department? That's ridiculous. Alicia shifted in her seat and looked at Elizabeth. You're not going to boycott our session, are you? Elizabeth joked. Alicia blushed. No, but... What? Elizabeth put down the paper she was holding. Your name's been mentioned. Elizabeth felt herself blush. Suddenly she felt sweaty in the armpits and a little breathless. Apparently a delegation's talking to Professor Harrison about their issues this morning, Elizabeth said. I'm sure there's a misunderstanding, Alicia said, straightening up. But perhaps what you should you should see what they're saying. She held out her phone to Elizabeth. On Twitter. 
Oh, for goodness sake, we're here to go over your chapter. Alicia switched off the screen and put her phone in the front flap of her bag. Which quotes were you talking about? She flicked through her own printout, keeping her head down. Elizabeth was relieved when Alicia got up to leave at the end of the hour. But the postgrad stopped at the door. I'm sorry about what's happened. Your words are probably taken out of context. You should correct the record. Explain what you meant. Elizabeth was flabbergasted. I don't know what you're talking about. Your emails, Professor? All right, Alicia, thank you. I appreciate your concern. She held her breath until Alicia turned and left the room, closing the door behind her. Elizabeth sat stunned, staring at the wood panelling on the back of the door. Then she forced herself to open the email program on her laptop. There were many, many messages. She didn't want to look at the horrible emails, but curiosity made her run through the list of senders. She recognised some of the names, amongst them a number of her students. Elizabeth liked the quietness of her house, the double brick, the shadows of the leaves of the mulberry trees. Everything was as it usually was, except it felt as though the house had a fathomless weight and was sinking into the solid earth beneath it. She just got off the phone to John. They had smuggled her out of the department through a gate that in all her 40 years at the university she'd never seen used was unlocked by a man from security and she was escorted around the back of the vice-chancellor's courtyard to a waiting taxi. Now, John had just explained to her that her emails had been leaked and published on an opinion website. He had echoed Alicia, saying he was sure they were taken out of context. What was? she asked him. Do I have to go through them? She could hear that John was strained. He was a gentleman, really. He should never have taken the position of head. She remained silent, so he said that they contained comments about students' backgrounds, their English ability. Then there were comments about what the female students wore. But John, I know, I know, I know, he said. I've thought it too, the low-cut tops, the short shorts. But I don't say it, and I definitely don't write it down. What's the difference, she felt like asking him. But instead, she said, those emails were private. They weren't to students. They're not private if you're using a university account. Besides, that's not the point, he added. It's perception at this stage. I've already been contacted for comment by one of the broadsheets. They love this sort of thing. Can't I demand they be taken down? Doesn't it infringe the university's privacy and my own? I've already asked the university lawyers to request the website delete them for what it's worth. They'll be out there on the internet. You can't take it all down. How did this website get them? They're looking into that. How can you have done it, Liz? She almost cried when he said that. They were private conversations. But all that racial stuff, that wasn't me. Who then? Brian, she said softly. What an idiot that man is. I know he's an old dinosaur. He just has to vent all these changes to demographics, to teaching. It's leaving him behind. John was silent for a moment. Do you think if the full emails were released, it would show that he... I couldn't she said. She steeled herself to log on to the opinion website and, hardly bearing to look, glanced at the headline. All Brian's puerile terms for women, Aboriginal people and Asians. They'd been left in the subject heads when she'd replied and were now on this site under her name. For all to see. 
The temptation was to make her case, to read every excerpt there and put it in its context to explain that it was banter between friends, that Brian exaggerated things for humour, that he liked to poke at sensitive topics and get Elizabeth to agree, and there was a grain of truth in what he said. She knew she couldn't bear to look again at her words, couldn't bear the exposure that arguing a case would involve. Didn't, for that matter, have the stomach to save her own skin by blaming Brian. I hope you don't mind me coming to your home. Alicia was standing on Elizabeth's doorstep. Of course not. Come in. Elizabeth had a study set up in one of the front rooms and she ushered Alicia in there. How are you? How's your thesis going? Elizabeth sat on the leather chair at her desk, leaving the cushion chair near the window for Alicia as though they were still teacher and student. Fine, quite well, actually. Lysia hugged her bag as she balanced it on her lap. Well, I'm sure Paul's very competent. Oh, it's, um, not Paul. I thought he'd taken over all my responsibilities. He has, it's just... Alicia looked uncomfortable. Well, most people now know anyway. We're seeing each other, so you see, it had to be someone else. Kit Franklin's doing it. Kit, yes, she's good, Elizabeth said slowly. But she began to feel that awful pain in her chest that had been her on-again, off-again companion these last months since her resignation. She hadn't known Alicia had a boyfriend. There'd been no hint, especially not that it was Paul. It made her feel uncomfortable. We started going out before Paul joined the department, so there's no suggestion of... Of course not. Elizabeth felt at a loss for words. If there's anything you need help with, Elliot Wise, not to step on toes, of course, but I'm quite happy to talk anything over. Thanks, Alicia said. And if there's anything you need, uh, technology-wise, <laughs> she waved her hand Elizabeth's laptop. You've helped me too much already. Alicia had shown Elizabeth how to use the university's online systems. They were expected to use them more and more every year. I never did learn that email filtering thing. <sighs> I'd been a bit more adept, maybe... Elizabeth looked at the blank screen of her computer, a patina of dust adhering to its surface. She recalled Alicia's fingers flying over the keyboard, the clicking of the mouse, her facility with the programs that had so impressed Elizabeth. I'm sorry about all that, Alicia said. May I ask you something? Why didn't you ever defend yourself? I didn't have anything to say, Elizabeth said, looking towards the young woman so self-possessed and certain. You should have made your case. Those issues need to be raised and talked about. To Elizabeth's surprise, Alicia sounded quite angry. Alicia didn't stay long and Elizabeth stood on her front porch and watched her leave. She had developed vertigo and breathlessness since her retirement and leant against the railing. A bird dipped into the bird bath and flicked its wings again and again then shot up into the mulberry tree. Elizabeth stood straight. The pain in her chest had made her stoop. In penance, she thought, amused. That was something she understood something from the old school. Was it this that Alicia and Paul and whoever else was involved couldn't understand? Because it was clear to her now that it was Alicia who had leaked her emails, who had access to her login. They'd misjudged her, though. Thought she'd put up more of a fight, cause more publicity, air the issues, as Alicia put it. They probably wanted that more than her resignation. Elizabeth shivered. That's all we have time for this week on Little Fictions On Air. Little Fictions is brought to you by Sydney short story publisher Spineless Wonders. To find out about the authors featured in this program and other great short Australian stories, go to the Spineless Wonders website at www.shortaustralianstories.com.au. We hope you've enjoyed our first episode, Dire Straits, about modern-day dilemmas. 
Let us know what you thought. Drop us a line at info at shortaustralianstories.com.au or leave a comment on the 2RPH Facebook page. I'm Ella Watson-Russell. Do join me next time for more Little Fictions On Air.